You are listening to episode 71 of Exit the Drinking Life and Beyond. Stay tuned to today's episode because I have an exit story for you. It's with one of my fellow This Naked Mind coaches. You are going to love this story. Welcome to Exit the Drinking Life podcast. I'm thrilled that you're here. I'm your host, Debbie Tauber, creator of the Exit Methodology, advocate for living your best and most intentional life, and alcohol freedom coach. This podcast is for you if you have big dreams and aspirations, but you've begun to notice that just maybe your current drinking patterns are getting in the way. Inside the podcast, we'll dive into a modern day approach that can help you move away from shame and blame when it comes to what you're drinking and finally take the driver's seat of your life again. It's time to exit the drinky life. All right, there we go. All right. Hey, you guys, welcome back to the podcast. I am so excited to be here with you guys today because I have a special guest and we're going to be hearing another exit story. And we're going to be finding out some information around breast cancer because this is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, October. And so we're going to be finding out more information around breast cancer, some of its impact on cancer and breast cancer, some things that we're noticing about it and stuff like that. So the special guest I have today is one of my fellow This Naked Mind coaches, Tabin. And we actually have never met each other in person. We've met via the internet, which is one of the things I love about the internet. And then we're also in a mastermind together. And she has offered to come and share her personal story around her exit from her drinking life, as well as the impact of breast cancer in her life. So I would love to bring her on and have her introduce herself and just tell us a little bit of parts about your story that you want to share. And we're just going to have a carry on with our conversation because I know that it's going to be helpful to those listening today. Oh, brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Debbie. Uh, thank you for the introduction. Uh, my name is Tabin, Tabin Almond. Uh, as you can tell by my accent, I'm English. So we met uh, s- sort of since I became a This Naked Mind coach um, about a year after Debbie had, had cert- become certified. Um My story, and I'm sure it'll be familiar to lots and lots of people, is growing up in a household where alcohol was completely the norm. Uh, My parents drank heavily throughout my life. My earliest memories are of smelling alcohol on my my mother's breath. And and, um, I really, as a very small child, didn't want to turn out like that. And then gradually found that I was doing exactly the same as she did. <laughs> um, and socialising with alcohol from quite an early age. And my parents never discouraged it and, and had a sort of secret pride, not so secret, a real pride in the fact that, that we could hold our drink. Um, and my parents used to make homemade beer, which was disgusting. I never, ever drank that. But, um, but there was always wine around, always gin and tonics. Um, you probably know that there's a, a culture in the UK of going to the pub and we used to go to the pub as teenagers way underage, but it was fine. It was a small village. Everybody knew who we all were and it was kind of, we were looked after, I guess, but didn't get horribly drunk ever at that stage, but we certainly socialized, um, 
underage and, and alcohol was the lubricant, if you like. Gradually, I went off to university, still wasn't in any way alcohol dependent, I don't think. I socialised with alcohol and it was probably rare that I was went out in the evening and didn't drink unless I was driving. But I wasn't preoccupied with thoughts of alcohol at all at that stage. I then, very ironically, I studied French at university and um, you do a, a year abroad as part of your degree course. And I was sent to Cognac in France, which is where they make Cognac, the, the, the best brandy in the world. Um, okay, I was going to ask, is that where they make cognac? I was going to guess. Yeah. And we, um, uh, I, initially I taught in a school and then I got a job working for Hennessy Cognac, who were one of the big employers. And actually we were paid partly in cognac, as well as your salary. You got either three bottles of the cheap stuff or two of the medium or one of the good stuff. And uh, I always chose three of the cheap stuff and they, you know, they disappeared really every month that I didn't have any left by the end of the month. And, you know, it was completely normal. You just sort of drank with everything. So um, by the time I went back to my final year at university, um, I was aware that I possibly drank a bit more than most other people, but still it wasn't really a big problem. And I started, then I got a job after university and I do remember buying wine to drink on my own in an evening. I was living kind of way out of London. All my friends were in London. I was sort of stuck about 80 miles away working um, in a job out there. And I would, and I sort of thought I was being sophisticated drinking wine on my own. And it felt you know, grown up, which is ridiculous, but that's yeah. how I thought it yeah, but, <laughs> isn't, but isn't that fascinating how that's what we feel like, right? Because from what I'm hearing from your story and what I know is a lot of people's story, but yet until, and the reason I want to point it out is because until someone helps us see it, how it's impacting us, we yeah. might not ever think, oh, that's one of the reasons why it's hard for me to get out of this cycle. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. It's because of our home conditioning, like, in your story, right? Your parents literally praised that you could drink, right? Hmm. And then you went on further and ended up eventually getting a job where part of how you were paid for doing your job was through alcohol. Absolutely. And then you moved on by yourself, living by yourself, and your thoughts are this is very sophisticated, right? Absolutely. And this would be yeah. all a very natural progression mm -hmm. based yeah. upon your upbringing experience. And, you know, my, my underlying belief was that alcohol was a sophisticated adult thing. And, you know, I didn't I don't think I knew anybody um, over the age of 18 who didn't drink. It was why would you? You know, it, it yeah, exactly. Like you're saying, like, why would you? Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and we're, we're laughing now, but we're not really laughing at it. We're it's kind of like this is a part of what helps you help yourself is to realize and give yourself grace. Oh, this is why it's challenging. It's because I've been conditioned this way, not because I am broken in some way, not because I'm not normal, where we think this yeah. drinking is normal when it's really we were conditioned this way. This is what is, yes, normal to us in our upbringing and in what we've seen, but it's not doesn't have doesn't mean that you are as a person are broken 
And it's something you trained yourself and you can also untrain yourself. Kind of totally. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I put in an awful lot of practice, basically. <laughs> over yeah. The but right. You got yeah. We all got a lot of practice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like using that as part of our life. Mm, absolutely. And I then I then moved from that first job into working in advertising. Um, and I was at the time a, a media buyer, planner and buyer. So I dealt every day with media owners and was taken out to lunch every single day if I wanted to be. And that always involved alcohol, you know, a gin and tonic before, wine with, often port and stuff after a meal at lunchtime. And then I'd carry on drinking in the evening. I fitted right in. Um, I thought this was brilliant. (laughs) And, and, you know, you know, and over the years, I I realised that it it just became completely normal. And it was, you know, it started out as, you know, a perk and then it became a habit and then it became something that was slightly getting in the way of me being able to do my job very well because after lunch I clearly wasn't thinking very clearly and and you know I was definitely wouldn't have been very productive and then after I got married had a couple of children and I have to say I actually found it easy to not drink during pregnancy that wasn't a uh, a big deal at all I think because you know I wanted children and and I was you know and and it wasn't a permanent thing but it was then and it was breastfeeding and stuff I, I wasn't really drinking but it gradually crept back up um, and I think you know looking back on it what happened then was that I was probably by the time the children were three four I was aware that my relationship with alcohol was not very healthy and by that stage I was kind of drinking to numb some unhappiness unhappiness with a a very sort of dysfunctional relationship with my parents particularly my mother who by this stage was drinking in a in a a very seriously problematic way Um, and all sorts of cognitive dissonance about recognizing that she had a problem, that I had the same problem. And Debbie and I have talked about this before. Um, yeah. It was just a real sort of big cause of unhappiness for me that I really hated the way she was living her life. And I could see that I was in danger of doing exactly the same thing. And I just, I didn't understand. I was very, at that stage, long before I'd I'd come across this naked mind and Annie was probably still at school at the time, but, you know, I was was just really confused by it all and started by, I guess, at least 10 years before I stopped drinking the first time, I was buying books to try and understand why I was finding it so hard to stop. I remember we were on holiday in the States, actually, and it was in Barnes and Noble in New York. And I bought a brilliant book, uh, which which helped a lot. But I I, I got to the stage where I understood all the theory, but I couldn't quite put it into practice. Um, And I was very hard on myself. I I. I still attached labels to people with, with who were addicted to alcohol and the term alcoholic, um, you know, was one that I, I would use. I would, in my heart of hearts, use it to describe myself, but never externally. Uh, I tried all the things that the sort of tools of moderation of 
not drinking Monday to Friday and never drinking on my own, making all these rules and never really sticking to them or never for very long, doing sort of dry January and, you know, not drinking during Lent and all sorts of things. But it never, nothing really, really stuck um, until I read Alan Carr's book, How to Stop Smoking the Easy Way. And I thought that makes a lot of sense. I kind of get what he's talking about. And I, but it wasn't, I didn't feel it was enough just reading a book. I'd read so many books by then. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I um, I booked a day where you spend one a day of one-on-one with with a, uh, one of the Alan Carr coaches, um, uh, which culminates in a session of hypnotherapy. And that was remarkably successful for, best, I think it was just over seven years. And I didn't... Uh, I didn't really think about alcohol. Um, I just thought I'm a not drink. I'm a non-drinker. And the times when everybody else was drinking and I wasn't, I would think, you know, thank God I'm not drinking anymore. Um, but what it what happened was I was then my marriage fell apart because my husband was gay. He'd run up huge debts, uh, eye-watering amounts of money that I discovered we owed. Um, he then disappeared, went off to live in Australia for a while, leaving me with all of these debts. And um, I was then diagnosed with breast cancer. I had to have quite a lot of surgery. So I had three, landed up with three lots of surgery, but I didn't drink through all the diagnosis and the first lot of surgery and went to, into the hospital to be told the results, the way they deal with breast cancer here in most hospitals is they they will do the surgery, in my case, a mastectomy. They did the mastectomy and tested the lymph nodes then. And then uh, if you if they find that you have got if the cancer is in your lymph nodes, then you go back in a second time to have the lymph system removed from, from that side. Um, and it was when I went back into the hospital to get the results of the, the lymph node tests. And the, the surgeon said, we've tested seven lymph nodes and it's in all seven. And suddenly it all got really scary. Um, yeah, it total uh, sense though. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, it was all this further surgery and, and it was definitely going to have to keep my radiotherapy and all the rest of it. And I kind of thought I was going to breeze through it and I realised I wasn't. And I went home that night and my daughter and my brother were with me and they opened a bottle of wine as usual. <laughs> and um, and I just said, I think I'll have a glass. And it was I was aware of them looking at each other because I hadn't drunk alcohol for seven years. My daughter didn't really you know, remember the, me from the time when when I was drinking. You know, she was in her early teens. And um, uh, and I didn't stop at one glass I probably didn't stop at one bottle that night I just went for it and it was to to numb and kind of not be there not face things and I told myself at the time it was just a one-off I wasn't going to go back to drinking it was just you know I was just going to do it for that night um uh but that wasn't how it panned out I didn't drink hugely in the next few months because I went I was in and out of hospital having more operations and then having chemo and Certainly you can't drink during chemo. I mean, I was too busy being sick, frankly. Um, but then gradually, once I got better, I was just back into that routine of um, 
of, of drinking again um, and really frustrated with myself, very, very cross and disappointed with myself for, for kind of letting that happen. That was the way I was thinking um, and just not understanding the nature of it. How could I have done that and then um, let myself down like that? Um, and I was sort of, I came across this naked mind online, um, really hesitated. I did the, I landed up signing up in the end for the intensive course, but I really, it was quite a lot of money. It was about 900 pounds. So sort of over a thousand dollars, which seemed like a lot of money to me. I didn't have a huge amount of money. I was still paying off all these debts from, from the breakup of the marriage and stuff. But I thought this has got to be worth it. And there was something in Annie's approach and, and stuff that just made me think, you owe it to, you've got to give this a go and really, really see if you can can sort this out. And it I bought the book. I almost could have stopped then, I think, you know, and I the intensive, the way it works is you sort of you you do do the learning the way all of these programs are do that, you know, under get the knowledge and 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 sort out the emotions and then the behavior change will will happen sort of fairly easily. Um, for me, I'd stopped drinking, you know, within a matter of weeks of starting the intensive. Well, and, and I think what that is is we're literally learning to uncover what it is that we're actually craving. Yeah, yeah. Right. You're discovering, yeah, the alcohol is addictive substance to the human body. So you're grasping that information, right, mm. from the science. And then you're also learning with the tools how to see, notice, become aware of, understand your thoughts, and then what you're actually craving, right? And then so mm. over here, it's like, yeah, I'm trained with this naked mind, but I use the terms exit, right, because about... Um, as the flight attendant, we trained you to like exit the aircraft by leaving yeah. everything behind. Yeah. So really, that's what you're doing. You're leaving all of your old beliefs behind, your old stories you've told yourself behind. First, you're learning how they're impacting you. And then the, you know, so you're like examining them, exploring them, experimenting with new things. Then you're Xing out the ones that aren't what like leading you towards what you want. And then you're igniting your curiosity and then you're trusting yourself to figure things out. And so, but to me, I think as you learned, yeah, you got the help from the Alan Carr and that really helped you for seven years, mm. but life still happens. Yeah. And life I think still goes on and without the tools of realizing, oh, I have this brain and this brain works the way the brain works. So these tools are going to, what I'm going to need really for life. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And I think with, with, with the Alan Carr method, and, and I, I wouldn't knock it or anything that works for people. No, no, yeah, I'm not knocking it. But for me, it, it was brilliant, but it, it didn't address the underlying beliefs that I had about the role that, that alcohol could fill in my life. And yeah, um, right. Yeah. Um, it didn't, you know, my, my, my genuine belief was that I needed alcohol to cheer me up after a tough day, help me relax, have a good time, did it? Any number of things, alcohol was the, you know, almost any question, alcohol was the answer. But I genuinely believed that. I mean, I, I didn't question it at all. Um, yeah. And 
Alan Carr method just sort of told my subconscious that I didn't want it. My subconscious went along with that until one day when the stress levels were just, you know, stratospheric, which they would be when you've been told you've got a really nasty form of breast cancer. Um, and I just thought, okay, now, you know, I was fine, but now that, you know, this is a time when I definitely need alcohol, clearly wrong, but, but at the time, the other thing that I, um, the, the huge difference that this naked mind has versus anything else I'd read was that this is not your fault. It's not yeah. you that's the problem. It's not you that's defective. All that's happened is you're a human being who's become addicted to an addictive substance and it's the drink and not the drinker that is the problem. Um, and understanding that was a huge, it was like a weight off my shoulders because then it was like, okay, so I'm not actually a misfit and a weirdo and somebody who doesn't deserve to be here. This I've just had the misfortune to get trapped by something that's addictive. That made me feel so, so much better. And it was a real, I mean, it, now when, and, and I'm really aware of it when I'm coaching other people and they, 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 I suppose people gravitate to a coach with experiences a bit like their feeling and that yeah. feeling of, hating myself for what I was doing is something that I I share with people and often a lot of people that I coach have that same feeling and that sort of just really really low self-worth because of something that's that they're doing habitually and they don't think they can get free of and so honestly I get where you're coming from and you can get out of that and and it also helped me hugely with my with my mum, because it's helped me to see that she was no different. She was trapped by an addiction to an addictive substance. She didn't want, she didn't wake up every morning when we were children thinking, tell you what, I'm going to be a really bad mum today and just get drunk and ignore my children and take no notice of them. Of course she didn't. She's a really right, yeah. wonderful person who was trapped by this stuff. Um, and it's exactly the same. So, so removing all of that judgment and blame um, made made just such a massive difference um, to to my relationship with myself, with that, you know, and and to with with my with my family, yeah, yeah. For me, the same thing. It's that deep inner self loathing that you have, yeah, because you honestly believe you're that deeply flawed, yeah, totally. and because you're literally believing that you're that deeply flawed mm. when you try something and then you can't do it permanent forever simply yeah. because of the progress and the process that you're trying to use mm. and the belief that you still have running that no, but alcohol is how I cope with things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You, until you literally turn that around and literally stop believing that you're going to always turn to that. Yeah. But it's the, the substance, why it's hard to let that go. Yes, it's hard for your belief, but it's also because it's an addictive substance. Mm. Not you, the person is deeply flawed and broken. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's interesting you said, you know, that that thing about um, it, it being forever. I don't want to drink, you know, ever again. But at the time when when I first encountered this naked mind, I I was not thinking I'm going to stop. I'm never going to drink again. It was 
I just need to get control of this. Um, And only once you've you've been stopped for a while and and using this, this method, it's, it's not a frightening thought to think I'll never drink again because I don't want to drink again. And I think Annie always has this thing when people say to her, you know, you're never going to drink again. She said, well, you know, if I want to drink, I'll have one. I just can't see that I'll ever want one. Right. Yeah. That's how I feel about it too. That's kind of like, I don't want Brussels sprouts. Like, right. Like I don't, maybe one day I might, you know, like, but right now I don't want Brussels sprouts. Yeah. if I don't have this thing of like, let me buy Brussels sprouts while I'm at the store. Mm, yeah. Right? And, and it's, it's the same thing. I don't want like, but if I chose, I also don't have this fear that, okay, if I chose to say one day at some celebration, I was going to have a sip of alcohol. I don't have a fear that I have this thing in my body that'll make me drink it all over again and become mm-hmm. like I was either. No, right. No. It's the same thing. Like, it's like, yeah, if I wanted to, I would choose to do it. I mm. don't actually want it. Yeah. Like it's, you know. Exactly. And, it, and that yeah. to me is the real freedom. It's it's the freedom from even having to think about it or be preoccupied by it at all. And also the freedom not to judge other people who do drink. And, right. and lots exactly. of people, you know. I, you know, I personally would rather my children didn't drink, but they both do. But I think they're they're quite aware, and they're you know I think most people that drink, it's it's a progressive thing, and there are plenty of people who go through life and it never seems to cause them any significant problem. And often I think it can be, you know, a pressure or stress that can just sort of you know, people have, have been kind of managing and then something happens or some, you know, relationship changes or something and, and they they just sort of seem to tip over the edge or in the Alan Carr thing, they sort of fall into the picture plant um, and then can't yeah. get out. Um, and we can't predict where or when or to whom that's going to happen, but it, there are an awful lot of people. And I find it amazing how just by telling people what we do, and I'm sure you get the same you get people sort of coming up and saying, really interested. How did you stop? Can you tell me a little bit more about it? And uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> right, because well, because the again with that conditioning, right? Like just how you were conditioned that this is part of life, this is what adults do, right? And it's very sophisticated to mm. have this beverage, with, yeah. which happens to be wine or gin and tonic, which is what I noticed, like with all my traveling to like in the UK. Uh, gin and tonic is the thing we're yeah. over here in the states we hardly ever serve gin and tonic like on the airplane but if we're going to the if we're going to the place, uk and even ireland like gin and tonic we they have extra gin on the plane they have extra tonic on the plane it's like <laughs> right, we, you know yeah. what the regions are right but yeah. um and now i got distracted I forgot what i was gonna point out <laughs> anyway um but the, it's like the the person, it's not because you have a disease. It's because of conditioning Absolutely. and how it is that you believe, right? Yeah. And then also what I have understood and learned from the addictive brain course I took, one of these addictive brain courses is they literally at this point anyway, and I took the course probably three years ago. So, so far up until like three years ago, possibly four years ago, I took it. They haven't found that there's literally in the body a specific gene, Mm. but they have found more like what we are talking about, environmental. 
like there are environmental cues that the brain's receiving all along while a person is growing up around the topic of alcohol. And that can be the people that are more prone to go that direction and have the belief, oh, this is alcohol is what you use for this, whatever that is. Right. Yeah. And so they have found that. Now they have also found that um, in like your situation, like with your breast cancer and the traumaticness of that particular event, when a person chooses a substance specifically like alcohol to navigate that, then during that traumatic event that's happening to you, the chemicals in the brain are slightly different. And when you hit alcohol with it at that moment in time, that's when it can almost be like an instant addiction. And it's because of the chemical layout of the brain based on the trauma that's happening. Yeah. And then the alcohol was hit. And Mm -hmm. so the brain was instantly trained. Yeah. Oh, this is exactly what we need for this situation. Yeah. And to cope with this trauma. And so then that can feel like it was almost like an instant addiction Mm -hmm. in that moment. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, they have found that, but they haven't found like what we are, what we're conditioned to believe that there's some kind of gene, and this is yeah. why it's you learned. Would, yeah, it's, it's a it's learned behavior. Yeah, learned behavior based on observations. This is what grown ups do. That's what I grown up grew up thinking. Yeah. yeah, but the whole thing with the with the breast cancer. I mean, we've never met in person, but so you don't know. But I'm actually quite a, you know, I'm a um, fairly athletic build extremely active person i mean the the things that would make you more susceptible to breast cancer are being inactive being overweight smoking or drinking or genetic in the 5 years leading up to being diagnosed i'd run i think 7 or 8 marathons and heaven knows how many half marathons so i definitely wasn't inactive i weigh i don't know in um pounds but I weigh sort of about 57 58 kilos so I don't know what, how that translates or you know just well you're not over you're not heavy I never have been I used to smoke but I stopped when I was in my mid-20s and didn't smoke very much the only thing in and I there's no sort of history of, of breast cancer in the family um, the only thing I had done was was drink no, I mean, I wasn't somebody that everybody said, oh, she, Tavin's got a problem with the booze, but I knew I had. I was a bit of a secret drinker. And that's the only thing. And the only other thing I'd done was um, I had started on a course of HRT when I hit the menopause, um, when I was getting, you know, insane numbers of hot flushes and stuff like that. So whether it was the alcohol or the HRT or a combination of the two, and I do know that cancer is it's pretty random and um you know it's 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 very yeah. sadly increasingly common but um the number of women who i got to know when i was having my treatment who uh, and it tends breast cancer as we know hit women in their in their 50s uh in, that's the sort of the big bulge of, of of women and um and a lot of them were you know fairly serious you know, social drinkers in inverted commas. And um, I think that, you know, there is definitely a proven link, whether it's causation or 
correlation. I don't know, and I'm not a statistician and stuff like that, but there is definitely enough evidence to say that, um, you know, drinking reasonably heavily will increase your chances of getting breast cancer. That much seems to be definitely known. It doesn't mean that everybody gets breast cancer is because they have been drinking really heavily or that everybody drinks heavily will get it. But there does seem to be a, a, some... Are the ripple effects of your current relationship with alcohol taking more from your life than you'd like? What's your plan for getting the support you need to stop the negative impact? And more importantly, is the plan based around a modern day approach to behavior changes? My programs are based upon current research instead of concepts created in 1935. As your intentional living and alcohol freedom coach, I offer you modern day tools to help you transform your relationship with alcohol without labels, judgment, or making a forever decision. In my programs, you decide where, when, and how much alcohol fits into the life you want to live. Private coaching allows you the space and freedom to be your unique self while taking ownership of your choices. Ready to start the conversation around private coaching? Head over to jumpseatcoaching.com forward slash breakthrough. That's jumpseatcoaching.com forward slash breakthrough, all as one word, breakthrough as one word, no spaces. There's a correlation in there somewhere, very much like the correlation of like our environment and what we grew up with, the cues there Mm. around the drinking. Absolutely. Right. So there's, but this is internal. I get it with the science and the internal in the body, but also here in the States, which um, you weren't aware of it, like, cause you're not in the States, but in 2020, like the American Cancer Society, their report literally came out saying yeah. that it's best to actually have zero alcohol, which yeah. was very oh, surprising, totally <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but which was very, very surprising when they actually went that far and literally said it and wrote it and put it in papers. Right. Yeah. And so it was a very surprising thing that actually happened. But I think that it's something that why I wanted. So what have you learned like since or how someone that may be impacted with breast cancer? Because this is also, yes, it's about your exit story and about how you were in one place and you found your way out. And, you know, you're just like I am where you don't really have this desire for alcohol any longer. Based on the methodology that we utilize to help ourselves get there. but. What would you say for people, because this is also going to go live like during October, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, to help them along that lines? Like, what should they look for? Like, what were some things maybe that you wish you had maybe known that you didn't know that you found out after the fact? Yeah, well, the biggest one for me was that um, that mammograms are not foolproof. Uh, my, my breast cancer story was that I had had a, a, a small lump been to the doctor um, and he said, "Mm, yeah, don't think it's anything to worry about, but we'll get you a mammogram. Um, So they sent me to the hospital for the mammogram because I was at that stage too young to be on the routine screening thing. And they said, yeah, we'll just do a mammogram just to check. Doesn't doesn't look like anything to worry about. But, you know, um, 
And this lump seemed to be growing a bit. So I was sent every six months for a mammogram. And every time it came back and said, nothing to worry about, nothing to worry about. I had 11 mammograms every six months. So this was going on for five and a half years. Um, and I woke up one night. I just had the letter saying, it's all fine. Don't worry about it. Your latest mammograms, absolutely tickety-boo. And I just woke up in the night and, and I had this incredibly strong instinct that there was something the matter. Nothing was hurting, no, no physical change, just a really, you know, people talk about a gut instinct, but it totally was. It came from really in the heart of me that there was something the matter. So I went to see the doctor who thought I was a little bit mad, but he's kind of a family friend as well. And he said, OK, Tamman, well, um, I, I said, it's the same instinct that told me that my husband was gay when there was no other evidence that he was. And I said, it feels exactly the same. And he said, in that case, let's just get you checked out. And he was a little bit, oh, you know, peace of mind and all that. Went to the hospital, saw a consultant who took one look at it and said, yeah, I don't like the look of that. Um, and actually, my, my lump was inside, but the skin was being pulled in. Um, sort of into the breast. So instead of sticking out, it was actually going inwards. And she said, yes, I don't like the look of that, but we'll get you a mammogram, but we'll also do an ultrasound. Um, uh, so they did the ultrasound, the mammogram, and the consultant came in. He said, oh, well, I've just had a look at the mammogram. That all looks absolutely fine. And he said, I'm a bit confused. I, yeah, why are you here? And so I told him about this strong instinct and he said, OK, well, you know, let's just have a little look and we'll be able to put your mind at rest. And he was kind of he was sweet, but he was a little bit patronising about it. And then he did the uh, the ultrasound and um, I'd been told that if I asked him outright, he would tell me what he could see, but he wouldn't volunteer it. So I said, what can you see? And and it was a it was a complete spine tingling moment that I will never, ever forget. He was looking initially, as I said, what can you see? He was looking at the screen and he kind of did a quarter turn and looked me straight in the eye. He said, I can see a woman with life-saving instincts. And I went, oh, bloody hell. <laughs> no, said, I have goosebumps. Yeah. You know, that was more than seven years ago. Um, and and I remember, and, and he's, he, I obviously, my face would have been stricken. And he said, don't worry. I think, I think you've, you've, you know, you've, made us aware in time but you know this this is um uh, and it was a four and a half to five and when he took it out it was in fact just over five centimeter tumor um um uh, a ductal carcinoma in situ or something like that i can't remember the exact name of it now um but it was basically going a lot right the way along the duct uh and it was very big and it had clearly been there all along since that lump that i first found but mammograms, as I now know, they measure the density of the brain breast tissue. And if the density of the tumour is the same as the density of the rest of your breast tissue, and that tends to happen if you are uh, fairly lean, apparently, you know, not got a lot of, of fat on you, but it can easily be the case that they simply can't see on a mammogram that something is growing there. So nowadays in the UK, the, if, if I was to be going now, they would not just do one thing. They wouldn't just do a mammogram. They would do either a CT or an MRI or a, an ultrasound as well. 
But at the time, this is going back, when I first um, presented with a lump, it would have been at 12 or 13 years ago. And they had a slightly different protocol then. Um, but so my, my message to everybody is, you know, if you don't rely on a mammogram if it's on its own, if you are worried about something, insist on a second means of diagnosis or, or, or sort of something else to allow them to see what's going on. Um, and also just be aware of your body and your instincts, because I was I was just, you know, this, this happened three months after my husband had, had left and I was kind of doing quite a lot of, I suppose, personal development, trying to understand and rationalise what had gone on and, and, and keep myself sane and try and, and try and keep myself together and, and, you know, survive well, as opposed to just muddle through. Um, and I think that that's really what saved my life because it was, it was the fact that I was listening to my body and my, my soul almost, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, was, I was very attuned to, to things and very switched on to um, that, that sort of gut feel, um, that genuine instinct. Um, and that without doubt saved my life. I mean, you know, it was, it was traveling into my lymphatic system and, you know, the combination of all the stuff that I had, the filthy chemo and all the rest of it, you know, I'm really lucky. I'm still here. That was well more than seven years ago and, and I'm completely well and touch wood. I'm, uh, you know, I'm now, according to the medics, I'm at no more risk of getting breast cancer than any other woman. You know, there's sort of the high risk period is past. Um, I still take some fairly nasty drugs to make sure there's no estrogen in my body, but um, you know, I'm, I'm really fit and well and so grateful that I just listened to that voice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think that that's really the thing, like, and to have the courage, even if the situation in where it felt like the doctors were, oh, okay, we're going to do this just to make her feel better, like patronizing. <laughs> Who cares? Let them patronize you and have the test. Totally. The next test, like, because here I know here in the States, they now do 3D mammograms. Mm. But then also in my situation, because my sister is a breast cancer survivor, I go ahead and ask my doctor at the time, no, I want an ultrasound too. And mm. because I explain why, and also yeah. I also want to encourage people. And even when it was first happening with my sister, and this was before, and this was probably around the same time it was happening for you is when it was actually it was earlier in my sister's life because her kids are were way younger and they're now just graduating college. But even then I started insisting that they no, I want the um, ultrasound. I don't care. And they're like, well, your insurance might not pay for it. I was like, fine. I have one body. I'll pay for it. Mm. Like I like willing to stand up. Don't let one, your internal doubt of what are they going to think of me if I ask for this? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then the, oh, and then if they say to you, your insurance might not pay for it. Well, you only have one body. So you do have the power over here. I know it's different there, but you can literally, okay, then I'll just choose to pay for it myself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, our national health service is, is brilliant. And and I didn't pay for any of my treatment and, and, you know, I don't have any health insurance as such, but, you know, we, we're very, very fortunate, but if, 
if it were the case that somebody was in the UK and felt that they were not being listened to, which is really unlikely, actually, but if, if it were to happen, I'd say just ask to have a scan done privately or, you know, we, we do have that option. Um, and, you know, people do do that a bit usually for speed, because especially, you know, after COVID, our, our, the health service is, is struggling somewhat to get back on its feet because it's, you know, all the beds have been handed over to COVID. Yeah. And stuff. But, but I but think it's that. Yeah. Honoring yourself, using yeah. your voice. Yeah. And yes, maybe the people will look at you funny. Maybe they will have thoughts. Maybe it will be uncomfortable, but go ahead and yeah. experience the discomfort and ask for yeah. yourself. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I've, I certainly, you know, I would much rather that I'd been wrong. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure you would have. Worry about that. But, you know, I mean, I, I 100% would not be here if I hadn't done something about it. And, you know, the fact that it had spread as much as it had, you know, it was, I don't know how long it would have been before it had got into metastasized into another organ where the, the outcome would have been very different. But, you know, they said, probably within the, you know, if, if I'd waited for another six months, it would almost definitely have been somewhere else. And, you know, you don't know where it's going to land up and whether it's going to be operable or not. But if it's, you know, it's also, as we all know, there are places in your body once cancer gets in there, you know, there's not much to be done. So yeah, I, I was very fortunate and I kind of, it's made me think I'm going to use this sort of second life a bit better than the first one. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> which is why one of the reasons why I'm always happy. I do quite a lot of talks about breast cancer and just, you know, helping people to understand and look for the signs and, um, you know, the fact that lumps aren't necessarily on the breast. They can be, you know, quite high up on your, your sort of collarbone area or clavicle under the arms that the you know sort of lumps anywhere really you need to to get them investigated um and if your instincts are telling you strongly um then follow them it's much better to follow it and find that there's nothing the matter than think oh, i'm just being a bit paranoid and do nothing and then find out when it's too late that you probably were right all along i mean and yeah. actually the doctors and nurses are always you know when when they, they weren't saying, oh, I think you're making a fuss. They said, well, you know, they did, did say a little bit, you know, well, hopefully it's, but they're being reassuring. You know, they're not, they're not setting out to make you feel like a fool. And Right. You know, but sometimes know. our brains can make us think that's totally. actually what they're doing when they're yeah. genuine. Yeah. Really, it's that thoughts coming in there. Yeah. And so what I want people to be aware of is, yes, those thoughts might come for you. Let them come, feel your discomfort and still go after what you want for yourself. Absolutely. Right. It's like, yeah, because yeah. I know I, I'm with you, too. Like anytime I've asked and when I've been more like I get that, especially in the beginning, when I first started having to ask when I just insisted, like, I don't really care about mm -hmm. that part, whether insurance says yes or no. I want this for this reason. Yeah. Then. The, but now I don't even have to fight for it. Like it's part of like because my sister is a breast cancer survivor, they automatically mm -hmm. give it to me. Yeah. But in the beginning, I had to say, no, no, you don't get it. Yeah. I want this yeah. and I'm and, going to have this. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I had I had a similar thing, you know, after, you know, having having recovered, you know, I was being given mammograms every and, and each time and I, each time I say I want something, uh, 
you know, belt and braces, not just the mammogram, thank you, on the on the remaining breast or, you know, the scar tissue. This and they all said, absolutely fine, totally get it, you know, no problem. Um yeah. So it just takes you opening up, asking for what you want. Absolutely. And I also think, because really this is also the show is about exiting the drinking life. And I also think yeah. that gut instinct that you have. Why you're up in the middle of the night? Why you're searching? Am I an alcoholic? Why you're searching? Am I drinking too much? Totally. It is your gut telling you, regardless of what everyone else is doing for you and your life and what you want, this isn't working out for you. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So listen yeah. to your instincts, ladies and gents. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And thank you so Actually, much for being here. Oh, yeah, yeah. go ahead, go ahead. Go I was ahead. just and men can get breast cancer too. So, yeah. Yeah, they are, yes, they actually can. After so, you know. yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been so, so wonderful to talk to you, Debbie. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. You do. Me <laughs> and thank you so much. And I know and yeah. that you've actually helped listeners. And then also... For people that may be in the UK and want help with exiting the drinking life, I'm going to put Tabin's information in the show notes so you guys can reach her instead of me. Because how you get help is what, who helps you is less what matters that, than that you get the help you need. Absolutely. Like, yeah. <laughs> All right. Lovely okay. to talk to you. Awesome. Thank you, Debbie. Thank All right. you. Okay. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Exit the Drinking Life podcast. I hope this episode has helped you move away from drinking shame and blame and instead into confidence and full belief that the life you desire is within your reach. You are not alone. I have been exactly where you are right now. If you have enjoyed this episode, please take a second to hit the follow button so you never miss a future episode. And leave a review to help me reach more listeners just like you looking to break away from the toxic cycle of drinking and discover a healthier approach that leads to a life full of abundance and happiness. If you want to take what you've learned here to the next level, head over to jumpseatcoaching.com for more resources and tools. See you back here on the next episode.